We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 13 if you want to go ahead and turn there. Um, one of the most quoted movies in our house is The Princess Bride. Hilarious movie. If you've never seen it, I encourage you, go get it. A lot of good quotable things. And in the movie, Vicini, who is the really short uh, uh, leader of the pack, played by a Wallace uh, Stewart, I believe is his name, uh, every time there's a turn of events... Uh, that he doesn't quite understand or see coming, he uses his catchphrase, inconceivable. And one particular scene that sets up, it's uh, Fezzik, who is played by Andre the Giant. He is carrying Vicini and Inigo Montoya, played by Andy Patinkin, and he is carrying them by a rope up the cliffs of insanity. And the man in black is quickly chasing them. They get to the top, he cuts the rope, and uh, you see Inigo and Fezzik look over the edge, and there's the man in black now free climbing on the cliff. Fezzik says, uh, he has really good arms, uh, something along those lines. And then setting up what I think is one of the best, best lines, best exchanges, uh, uh, Vizzini sticks his head in the scene, and he says, he didn't fall? Inconceivable. And Inigo Montoya kind of looks over at him and says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And they stare at each other for a few seconds. Perfect timing. Hilarious. I don't do it justice. Go look it up on YouTube when you're done. But in our world, the word love is used a lot. Most of the time when I hear others use the word love in conversations or in songs to describe their relationship with another person, I want to turn to them and say, you keep using that word, I do not think it means what you think it means. Love is most often described as a feeling, a powerful emotion. I actually saw where one writer described it as a force of nature. But that was interesting. But what's interesting about anybody who typically tries to describe and define love is they, they'll often say and qualify their attempt that it's really too complex of a subject to truly define. Some of you, like me, you grew up in the 80s. And when I was a kid in the 80s, I would often be in my room on the weekend, a Saturday, I'd be working a puzzle or playing with some stuff, and I would have the radio on to K107, and I would be listening to Casey Kasem's Top 40 for that particular week. And if you ever listen to Casey Kasem's Top 40, and in the 80s particularly, most of the songs were about love. So I listed out some of these titles that I remembered that came to my mind. Uh, Is This Love? By white, it's hard to say the titles without actually trying to sing the lyrics to it. What's Love Got to Do With It? That one's a really hard one to say without singing it. Listen to your heart when a man loves a woman. I want to know what love is, and we could go on and you could add to. Music and media, here's the point I want to get at. Music and media have attempted for for years and for all of time to define love. But the problem is music and media aren't governed by truth. They're not governed by God. So their definitions and descriptions are skewed to truly define love. So where do we go to find a a true, a pure, a robust definition of love? We go to the source of truth. We go to the Bible. And it's not just to find a definition of love. We go to the scriptures to learn anything about life. 
Uh, the scriptures claim to, to know and teach everything pertaining to life and godliness. And so we go to the, the word that is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, so that we can understand who we are, so that we can understand who God is, what he's done for us. But this summer, we're not discussing all of those things. We're particularly focusing in on love. And specifically, we're focusing in on the book of 1 Corinthians as we've been in this. And so we've got kind of a series within a series right now. The bigger series is our Healthy Church series, the letter to the Corinthians. The smaller series is our Summer of Love series as we're working through 1 Corinthians 13. Last week we introduced it and we made the point that love is necessary. 1 John 4, 8 reads this, that God is love. Not that God loves, not that he does loving things, but that his essence is love. And he, being the creator, created us, his creatures, to be in his image. Therefore, if God is love, we are meant to love as well. That's why we see over and over the commands of Scripture that we are called to show love, to be loving to other people. But what does that look like? That's the real question we're asking this summer. What does biblical, God-like, Christ-like love look like? Follow along with me as we read now in 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, we'll read this quite regularly. Uh, one of the goals we've set out before all of you is to put this chapter to memory uh, this summer. Uh, but 1 Corinthians 13, and uh, we'll read this together. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains but I have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And when I was a child, I, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. In the New Testament, there are three main Greek words that are translated love. Eros is one of those words. Uh, this is more of a lustful, sexual type of love used to describe uh, this kind of love. We get our term erotic from this Greek word, eros. Philia. 
is a love that is meant to describe a deep friendship that you would have with someone else. Philadelphia, which is known as the city of brotherly love, gets its name from this particular Greek word, philia. And then there is agape. This is a, a demonstrated love, a, a sacrificially demonstrated love, a love that, that does things, agape. So to review and to add to what we've already learned, I want to take just a few minutes and we're going to show a video to you. This is put out by the guys at a Bible Project. You've, we've shown videos of theirs here before as they try to define, help us understand books of the Bible. This is one where they put together to help us, again, review, add to our understanding of what agape love really looks like. And So if, you so if you've heard of Jesus, you probably know about one of his famous teachings called the Golden Rule. Do to others what you would want them to do to you. And this, actually, is a restatement of something else that Jesus said, that the meaning of life is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's really beautiful, but what does he mean exactly by the word love? It's an unclear word in English, because you can love your mom and you can love pizza. And if the word love means the same thing in both of those cases, your mom's going to feel real bad. So what did Jesus mean in his language? Well, first of all, this love your neighbor phrase is a quotation from the Hebrew scriptures, where the word for love is ahava. However, the language Jesus spoke and taught in from day to day it was a cousin language of Hebrew, that is Aramaic, in which the word for love is rachma. But then, as Jesus' followers spread his teachings around the world, they translated them into Greek using the word agape. But here's what's fascinating. The earliest followers of Jesus who wrote the books of the New Testament in Greek, they didn't learn the meaning of agape by looking it up in ancient dictionaries. Rather, they looked to the teachings of Jesus and the story of his life to redefine their very concept of love. So one time, Jesus was asked about the most important command in the Jewish scriptures. And he first quoted from the ancient prayer in the Torah called the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. So love for God is the most important thing. But then Jesus quickly followed up by saying another command from the Torah was also the most important, to love your neighbor as yourself. So which is the most important, loving God or loving your neighbor? Jesus' answer is yes. To ask the question means you don't get his point. For Jesus, they are two sides of the same coin. Your love for God will be expressed by your love for people and vice versa, they're inseparable. And so this makes it clear that for Jesus, agape love is not primarily a feeling for someone else that happens to you, like our phrase, I fell in love. For Jesus, love is action. It's a choice that you make to seek the well-being of people other than yourself. Jesus also went on to teach that genuine love for God and others means seeking people's well-being without expecting anything in return, especially from people who are in difficult situations who can't repay you even if they wanted to. According to Jesus, this kind of generous love reflects the very heartbeat of God. And he took this even further. Jesus said that the ultimate standard of authentic love is how well you treat the person that you can't stand. Or in his words, you shall love your enemy and do good to them, expecting nothing nothing in return. For Jesus, this kind of enemy-embracing love imitates the very character of God himself. Now, we wouldn't be talking about Jesus still today if he had only said things like love your enemy. This is how he actually lived. 
Jesus was constantly helping and serving the people around him in very practical and tangible ways. And he consistently moved towards poor and hurting people who couldn't benefit him in return. He showed love for the forgotten ones, the people who usually fall through the cracks. And when Jesus eventually marched into Jerusalem, he made himself an enemy of the leaders of his people by accusing them of hypocrisy and corruption. But then instead of attacking his enemies to overthrow them, he allowed them to kill him. Jesus died for the selfishness and corruption of his enemies because he loved them. After Easter morning, Jesus and then his followers claimed that it was the power of God's love for the world that was revealed in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. As the Apostle Paul put it, God demonstrated his own agape for us in this. While we were still sinners, the Messiah died for us. Or in the words of the Apostle John, God's own agape was revealed when he sent his one and only son into the world so that through him we could have life. And for John, then, this leads naturally to the conclusion, beloved ones, if that's how God has loved us, then we ought to show love for one another. So Christian faith involves trusting that at the center of the universe is a being overflowing with love for his world, which means that the purpose of human existence is to receive this love that has come to us in Jesus and then to give it back out to others, creating an ecosystem of others-focused, self-giving love. And that's the New Testament meaning of agape love. That is agape. Agape is the word that's used here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And it's vitally important that we understand that in the Greek here, as we read through all this, love is patient, it's kind. Paul doesn't use adjectives here to describe love. These are verbs. This is action. Uh, Garland, uh, a commentator, uh, well defines this and says, Love is a a dynamic and active, uh, not something static. He's not talking about some inner feeling or emotion. Love is not conveyed by words. It has to be shown. It can be defined only by what it does and does not do. We are called to action. Like DC Talk saying a couple decades ago, John Mayer more recently, love is a verb. And so let's begin with this. Love is patient. Now, I suppose we all have a a definition or a picture that comes to our mind when we hear the word patience. I think of my grandpa Matthews sitting in his recliner. Um, If if we were having a family get-together and the family get-together started at 5 o'clock, my grandpa would be ready probably around 4.30 and he would go sit in his recliner. Grandma would be ready around 6 Remember I said we start at 5. Grandma would be ready around 6 or 6.30, and yet you would find Grandpa just simply sitting there in his recliner. always viewed that as patience. I had the joy of uh, working with my dad uh, as a teenager, and, and uh, in the oil field, things would go wrong quite often. Things would break. You didn't have the right parts with you. And I would watch him deal with those crises in the moment with patience, shrugging it off, not getting upset. Maybe you think of a a guy next to you in in bumper-to-bumper traffic. You're both no doubt late for work because some accident or construction that's in front of you. You look at yourself in the rearview mirror and you've got your angry eyes on, your face is a little red, you're really frustrated by this. And then you happen to glance over and the dude next to you, he's just singing, he's having the best time in the world in his car. What's going on? 
patience. However you define patience, there is a general consensus that attaining it is one of the hardest things we could do. Be easier to catch lightning in a bottle than to grow our patience, some would certainly say. Our typical definitions of it, kind of like I just described, being able to wait, they fall quite a bit short of what the biblical idea and understanding of patience is. To be patient is this, it's to suffer long. It's to suffer long. Put these definitions in your bulletin because I want you to be able to think through these this week. It is to be slow to anger. That's what it means to be patient, slow to anger. Here's a a longer definition. Patience is to bear up under provocation without complaint. So to bear up while somebody's prodding at you without complaining. So if it's bearing up under provocation without complaining, love is willing to suffer wrong without retaliation. I'm going to say that again. Love is willing to suffer wrong without retaliation. Love is is willing to be treated unjustly and still show goodness to the person who's treating you unjustly. Let that sink in for a minute. This is how Jesus is described in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter says when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he was threatened, he didn't threaten back, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Remember, Peter was the one who was standing in the courtyard denying him. He could see them mocking Jesus. He could see them beating Jesus. He could hear the accusations being laid against him, yet Jesus didn't retaliate. Let's consider the loving patience of God for a moment. People often ask, why does God let this stuff go on that's going on? Where's he at? Why why does God let a guy like Assad in Syria, day after day, kill his own people? creating a refugee crisis all across the globe. Why does he he let a guy like Craig Wood locally take the life of a young girl in such a horrific way? Well, the Bible addresses those questions. 2 Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness. Why is this still going on? God, you said you said you were going to put an end to this. He's not slow to fulfill his promise, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's patience is displayed day after day as people sin against him and sin against one another. Robert Ingersoll was a well-known atheist of the last century. And oftentimes in the middle of his lectures against God, he would stop and he would say, I'll give God five minutes to strike me dead for the things that I've said. He would then use the fact that he wasn't struck dead as proof that God didn't exist. Uh, Theodore Parker, who was a contemporary at the time of Ingersoll, 
had this response. And did the gentleman think that he could exhaust the patience of an eternal God in only five minutes? The patience of God is on full display in Genesis chapter 18 as Abraham bargains with God for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember that? God had been visiting with Abraham and Abraham said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for their many sins. And Abraham says, God, what if there's 50 righteous people there? Will you, will, you, will you let it go? Yeah, if there's 50, I'll let it go. And the conversation ensues back and forth until Abraham gets to 10. God, if there's 10 righteous people, if there's 10 righteous, Abraham stopped asking at that point. That's the patience of God. Long-suffering with people. It's Jesus on the cross when he prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Who's he praying that for? The ones who nailed him there. The ones who are mocking him. Father, forgive them. The fact that any of us, us rebels in this room, that's what we are by nature. The fact that any of us are seated here this morning is evidence to the patience of God. That he put up with us long enough until we got a new heart. Till the Holy Spirit would regenerate us to give us new life till we were adopted as his children. He's patient. So what does it look like for us? Are we seriously called to be patient if somebody spits in our face, mocks us and ridicules us, rejects our love? Yes, you are. Jesus made it clear in Matthew 5 that if somebody strikes you on the cheek, turn the other one. How many times has God turned his cheek <laughs> Because of you, because of me. So we could break this down for days, I understand that, but I'm going to try to summarize patience in just a couple of points. You have these in your bulletin. First is this. Love, this patient love, bears with certain annoyances or inconveniences without complaint. Love bears with annoyances and inconveniences without complaint. How many of you know somebody who's annoying? Don't have to raise your hand. Don't have to name names, please. We all do. We all live with, are around, and work with. In some capacity, there's, there's people that annoy us. And guess what? You probably annoy some people too. Patience is the ability to suffer long with those who would annoy with those who might inconvenience you? How do you respond when others hijack your agenda or your plans? You, you are going to do this, and now you can't do that because this person ruined it. Love is patient, and it suffers long with those inconveniences. Second, love does not lose its temper when provoked. Patience 
keeps you from losing your temper. Proverbs actually encourages us over and over to avoid being and avoid being around hot-tempered people because patience suffers long. Finally, love steadily perseveres. Patience has the idea of endurance. It continues to put up with. Peter came to Jesus and said, how often if my brother sins against me do I have to forgive him? Seven times? Would Jesus say no? Seven times 70. You, you keep forgiving. You keep loving. You keep showing patience. That's what we're called to. One of my favorite uh, stories from American history is the adventures of Lewis and Clark. And Lewis and Clark had set out from St. Louis and they were following the Missouri River trying to find the, the headwaters of that and then they were going to jump on the other side of the Continental Divide and they were going to head to the Pacific Coast and try to open up that trade route, see what would happen, introduce America to a lot of Native Americans who were already here. And so they got close to the headwaters of the Missouri River, and, and, and so they're right there at the Continental Divide. And in their thinking, they would get the Continental Divide, and, and they would come on the other side, and there would be another river, right, that would, that would go just like the headwaters had come. And then they would just get on that river, and that's downstream from there. They had come upstream. This is going to be easy. Except when they got to the Continental Divide, and I don't know at what point it was, but they looked over, and there's the Rocky Mountains. What did they do? They had to persevere. They had to keep going. You may live with some people that are like the Rocky Mountains. And it's tough. It's slow going. You don't know if you're ever going to make it. Keep going because love perseveres. Love continues to move forward. The fact is we want people to change immediately. We expect people to change immediately. We don't expect that of ourselves, but we expect it of other people. But love suffers long with people. Love is slow to anger with people. One of Abraham Lincoln's earliest political enemies was a man named Edwin Stanton. He called Lincoln a, 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 a low cunning clown. He called him the original gorilla. At one point he said, it's ridiculous for people to go to Africa to see a gorilla when they could just find one just as easily in Springfield, Illinois. Speaking of Lincoln, politics hasn't changed that much, has it? But Lincoln never responded to the slander. In fact, when he became president of the United States, he needed a secretary of war And he asked Stanton. His, his friends, his family were absolutely frustrated and asked him, why would you choose this person to be the Secretary of War? Lincoln's response was simply, uh, he is the best man for the job. It said later, as Lincoln's body lay slain in state after his assassination, Stanton looked into the coffin and through his tears said, there lies the greatest ruler of men that the world has ever seen. 
See, in time, Stanton's animosity had finally been broken by Lincoln's long-suffering, non-retaliatory spirit. Patience had won. And the fact that you're sitting here this morning tells me that patience wins. God's been patient with you to bring you to the point where you are, to bring you to a point to know Christ, to love him, to understand the gospel. Patience has won in your life. Second, we find this, that love is kind. Just as patience is able to take anything from others, kindness will give anything to others. Patience takes, kindness gives, even to enemies. Kindness is the more active counterpart to patience. It has to do with reaching out through deeds that demonstrate compassion and mercy. Romans 2.4 says this, do, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and patience, not knowing that it is the kindness of the Lord that brings you to repentance? The kindness of the Lord brings us to repentance. How has God been kind to you? It's most strikingly known in the coming of Jesus. It's simple kindness that God would put on flesh and come and dwell among us. But much more than that, Jesus would lay down his life for us. Titus chapter 3 says, But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Paul is saying to Titus that Jesus is the personification of God's kindness, his generosity. When this kindness that we call Jesus appeared, he saved us. Jesus' life and death are the demonstration of the kind, compassion, and mercy of God. Consider the gospel. Consider that you were without hope. A rebel running from your creator. And instead of simply letting you run, instead of simply bringing judgment into your life, the creator put on flesh and he came and he lived the life that you could never live and he died the death that we would never want to die. He endured the hell that your sin deserved. Greater love has no man than this. Greater kindness has never been shown and never will be shown than the kindness that we see and experience in the cross of Christ. In the Old Testament Exodus, we see the kindness of God those complainers would wake up every day and there's new man on the ground, food to eat. In the Gospels, we see the kindness of God on display in the life of Jesus as the crowds would come to him, and not always at a convenient time, 
And they would plead, will you, will you please heal us? Will you please teach us? And Jesus would heal. He would teach. A couple times he even fed them fish and bread. The kindness of God. Kindness is what Jesus had in mind in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, you've heard that it's been said, an eye for an eye. Somebody takes your eye, you take their eye. But I tell you, if somebody wants your coat and takes your coat, give them your cloak too. Or if somebody demands that you go a mile with them, go two miles with them. That's kindness. So what does it look like for us? Love is considerate. And it's helpful to others. So when somebody needs help moving, I had some guys just a couple weeks ago help the Postons get a refrigerator in their house. Turned out to be a little harder than, than, than we thought it was going to be. That's kindness. I thought of this the other day. I, I remember a few years ago when I, I had left town and we were on a vacation. I came back and there was a tree that had died in my backyard and I came back and I looked out the window and the tree was gone. It was out of kindness that some of the men in the church had got together cut that tree down. Some of the wood's still back here behind the building in this fire pit. Kindness. How about this one? Love is gentle and mild. It is always ready to show compassion. Kindness is always ready to show compassion, especially for those who are in need. It's the question that we've been asking for months. Who can I serve? Who needs served? Who needs their, their feet washed? Kindness puts itself out there. You may consider yourself an introverted person. Kindness will have to overcome introvertism, if that's a word. Because kindness takes initiative. Kindness takes the risk to say, I'm going to show mercy and compassion for this person. Kindness is serving and have a blast. A bunch of kids demanding darts so they can nearly hit you in the face with them. So they try to pop balloons. That's what we do. We let them throw darts at balloons. But kindness is taking the time to say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bear the heat. Just so I have opportunity to, to just serve. Serving at the community kitchen. Other local ministries. It's kindness that we're trying to show as we support a feeding center in Latoka, Fiji. That's the goal. We want to feed some kids. We want their bellies to be full. We want them to hear the gospel of Christ. We want to get behind that and support that. It shows itself in thousands of, of ways in your day-to-day -day personal life, ways that you can show kindness to your kids, kindness to your spouse, kindness to your parents, kindness to your coworkers, kindness to your neighbors.
Last week we defined love like this. Love is, is you before me. You before me. That's what kindness does. It says, I'm going to put you and your interests in front of me and my interests. One of the kindest things you can do for anybody is share the gospel. Evangelism is a kindness. Because they need hope. Yeah, we want those kids to have food to eat. We don't want them to be hungry when they go to bed at night. We don't want them to be malnourished. But greater still, we want them to have hope in this life and the next life. And evangelism, sharing Christ with your family and your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers is the greatest kindness you could show. Many of you, this is what love does. It's not what love is, love does. Love does kindness, love does patience. So how, how do you measure up? How is your patience? How is your kindness? Some of you are no doubt thinking, this is impossible. Being patient, suffering long, impossible. And maybe your mind is flooded with past experiences of losing it. Maybe it's filled with past experiences of trying to be patient, trying to grow in patience. Maybe you think it's impossible because you realize some things are going to have to change. Because here's the thing, love, love is going to cost you. If you're going to be patient, it's going to cost you. If you're going to be kind, it's going to cost you. Love comes with a price. You've got to be willing to give up your own interests, your own self. But in doing that, you're never more like Christ. We're never more like him than when we give up our interests for the interest of others. Love costs. So if you're struggling and saying it's impossible, I have a question for you. Do you have the Spirit of God inside of you? Are you a follower of Christ? You have new life. And if, and if the answer is yes, then, then you have access to this love. Love, kindness, patience, all of them are fruit of the Spirit who lives inside of you, who desires to work that fruit out in your life. It doesn't get any closer than that. It doesn't get any easier than that. But if the answer is no, if you don't have the Spirit of God, then, then you need a new heart. Because on your own, you will never love with kindness and patience, I assure you. We're made new creations when we put our faith in Christ and His work on the cross, His resurrection from the dead. He empowers us to new life, 
And if you don't have that new life, I encourage you, cry out for it today. Confess your sin. Cry out for your need for a Savior today. But for those of you who are new creations, first of all, praise the Lord for that. Thank Him for the life that you have. Thank Him for the the patience and the kindness that He's shown to you. Start there. But if you're a new creation and you just aren't living like it, then let me give you a couple things to consider. Number one would be this. God is not going to put you in a situation where you have to respond with sin. Remember that promise from 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There's no temptation that's taken you that's not common to man. God is faithful. He won't suffer you to be tempted above your able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape. In other words, God is not going to put an annoying person in your life where you have to lose it. God's not going to inconvenience you in such a way where you have to respond with anger or frustration or complaint. You have within you the ability to bear up under that provocation. That's what patience is. So if you're struggling, you need to, here's our favorite word, repent. You've got to repent of your lack of patience and kindness. It's not, repentance isn't just saying, oh, yeah, I know I need to work on that. You've been saying that for a long time, I'm sure. Repentance is turning from it. Repentance is confessing your sin to God and to other people. Confessing your need for God to help you and maybe even for the need of other people to step into your life and help you. It's to pray for grace to grow. It's studying the patience and the kindness of God so that you get a very clear picture, a renewed mind of what it looks like to be patient and kind. And some may argue, but that sounds like a lot of work. Love does. Love works. Third, I would say this. Be patient with your own growth. Don't expect that just because you're patient this week that it'll come easy next week. Just because you show kindness to one person doesn't mean it's going to be easy to show kindness to the next person. So we have to repeat this repentance as often as we can. We have to learn to even be patient with our own growth. And that applies to other people. You've got to be patient with other people as well and their growth. It may click for you. It may be a struggle for them. Patient. Kindness. Before we pray, I want to encourage our families, our friends that are here, take some time this week. And talk through with somebody else. It can be your whole family, maybe lunch today, dinner tonight. Talk through these definitions of patience. Go back through. Patience... Patience doesn't lose its cool, right? It's not bears under certain annoyances and inconveniences. Have a conversation about the things that annoy you. 
the inconveniences that you experience in the day-to-day. Talk those over with people. Confess your struggles with those things. Pray for each other. That's, that's, that's what this is all about. We're not going to fix this in a 40-minute sermon on a Sunday. It's going to take the effort, the conversations that you can have throughout the week, talking to God, talking to others, thinking through, putting more meat on these bones. I can't give all understanding of patience because you're going to deal with things that I don't deal with. Your annoying people aren't my annoying people. The people that God puts in your life to show kindness to are not the same people that God puts in my life to show kindness to. And so I want to encourage you, seriously take some time this week to just talk through these things with some of the people that God's put in your life. Pray for each other as you recognize this. Hold each other to some account in regards to these things. And some of you may be scared to do this because you're thinking, man, if I start talking about losing my temper at the table with my kids, yeah, you're gonna have to confess your own sin. You're gonna have to seek forgiveness. Some of you children are gonna have to seek forgiveness of your parents because you have not been patient. You have not been kind. That's what we're called to do. Stir each other up. Irritate each other to love and to good works. And so I encourage you to do that this week. Let's pray together, though. Before I pray, I want to give you just a moment. I want to give you a minute of silence here. To pray your prayers of confession, to pray your prayers of thanksgiving, for the kindness, the patience of God. Take a moment, pray, and I'll pray for us.